Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And moving on to Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Thank you, Justin, for your welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. And this sermon is not part of any series. That's because, as Justin just mentioned, most of the, many of the parish people were away at our annual parish weekend away, where Tom was finishing his series on the book of Daniel. Now, I could have tried to do the same thing, but when you have a PhD student on the team specialising in a particular and very difficult book, one is well advised to keep away from that area and try another bit of scripture. But which one? What shall I do? My, my Sunday begins with my favourite service, which is the 8.30 Book of Common Prayer Holy Communion at, at St Philip's. And you may find this weird, but the Book of Common Prayer actually gives you readings for each Sunday. We don't always follow them, 
but it recommends readings. And the one for this morning was Matthew 15, 21 to 28. And I thought, that's a really interesting reading. It's uh, puzzling, uh, it's disturbing, and yet at the same time it has a wonderful message for us. So I thought, forget about Daniel, I'm going for Matthew 15, 21 to 28, which you just heard read a moment ago. Now, there are two ways in which this story is very puzzling. Two ways. First, there's the way in which you heard Jesus ignores, or responds rather, to a woman who is very much in need. He ignores her. And when the disciples urge him to send her away, he seems to agree with them. And finally, when she makes it impossible for him to ignore her, we hear harsh words about children versus dogs. Very puzzling, in fact, quite disturbing, coming as this does from Jesus. Secondly, it's puzzling in that Jesus then flips and completely changes his attitude to the woman. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Given how he treated her at the beginning, this too is puzzling. So what the heck is going on? I have three, I'll present my material under three headings. One, a desperate outsider intruding on Jesus. Two, Jesus' harsh reply is based on God's choice. And three, she with no claim on God's promises gains God's unwarranted gift of grace. That's my three headings. They're they're in the order of service. Let's begin. The story of a desperate outsider intruding on Jesus. The first thing to notice about this incident is that Jesus and his disciples have gone into what for them is a foreign country. They've gone north, out of Galilee, uh, north to the edge of the Mediterranean there, to the place of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are up the coast on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, I guess you'd say today near where today you'd have, have Lebanon. And it looks as though Jesus and his disciples are going to that place for a bit of R&R. It's been a very busy and d- dynamic experience. But the R&R doesn't last. They don't get a break because a woman intrudes, a desperate woman, verse 22. Quote, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy upon me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Lord, son of David, have mercy upon me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. This poor woman's daughter is in a terrible way. She's literally, in the, in the Greek of Matthew's Gospel, terribly demonized. What's going on? The biblical worldview understands that as well as this, as it were, mundane, normal realm we're so used to, in a sense treat as the only realm, there's in fact other unseen realms. And this child is afflicted by a demon from this other unseen realm. What exactly is a demon? Because they occur a lot in the Gospels first three Gospels. Now there are various explanations given. The one I lean to is given in 
Peter Bolt's interesting book, Living in the Underworld, which is published by Matthias Media Press uh, in 2007. Uh, Bolt, it's, a, it's an easy to read book, by the way. Uh, Bolt used his doctoral thesis, a very learned piece, and summarised it down for this book. Bolt argues that in Jesus' time, the term unclean spirit or demon referred to the spirits of the dead from the underworld who continue to make their presence felt on earth, what we would probably call a ghost of some kind. Estranged from their bodies, they now wander the earth looking for a host dislocated from their proper home under the earth. They now search for a temporary home in a physical body or some other body. In the Gospels, demons are always looking for homes. So here's this woman whose daughter is destructively affected by a spirit from the underworld. She is desperate for help from Jesus, whom she believes has power to rescue her. But, and this is important, the woman herself is a foreigner, very much so. You may not know this, but sometimes the first three Gospels have the same story in them, and we think that one may have got it from the other as they wrote their Gospel. And it's thought by many scholars that Mark's Gospel, which is number two in the series, which has this story as well, probably is the original, and that Matthew, when he composed a bigger Gospel, concluded in. That may be so. In Mark's Gospel, the woman is simply described as, quote, a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia which is entirely accurate. That's what the place was, Syrian Phoenicia. But Matthew uses a different term for her, an archaic term, a loaded term. He describes her as a Canaanite woman from that vicinity. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity. You may not know this, but Canaanites were the name of the ancient enemies of Israel who were dispossessed by them in the land of Canaan. Now, it's true that the inhabitants of Syria, of Syria and Phoenicia were descended from Canaanites. That's true. But to use this term, Matthew is emphasizing her alienness. She's a Canaanite woman. Why? We'll see shortly. And this appears to be the reason that Jesus ignores her. It's why he acquiesces in the disciples called to send her away for, as they put it, she keeps crying after us. Jesus' reply to this is simply, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, i.e., not to her. And this also is, I think, what lies behind Jesus' sharp rebuff to the desperate woman when she finally corners him. She's begging for help, but Jesus responds with a riddle. Verse 25, 26, the woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me. She said, he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. This is not advice on childcare. This on its face is a blatant refusal to help. And it's clear, I think, we can work at the other level what's going on here. Who are the children? for whom the bread is for the lost sheep of Israel. Who are the dogs for whom it is not right to toss the children's bread? 
It is the outsiders, the foreigners, the Gentiles, if you want to call them that, especially a Canaanite woman, Canaanite woman from that vicinity. It's not right to give them what is promised to Israel. Now, I don't need to tell you that to us this sounds harsh and frankly racist. Jesus discriminates against a desperate woman on ethnic grounds. There's no diversity, inclusion, and equality here. So what the heck's going on? Well, that's our first heading. A desperate outsider intruding on Jesus. We'd better get quickly to the second heading, I think. Second heading? Jesus' harsh reply is, in fact, surprisingly based on God's choice. Jesus' harsh reply is surprisingly based on God's choice. Now, to us modern Westerners, with a belief in quality, inclusion and, and, um, um, and diversity, although so we say we do anyway, or our, or our HR departments do, um, for us, uh, such discrimination that we see here from Jesus is utterly unacceptable. If we read the story in that framework, Jesus is behaving appallingly from our point of view. And I guess what we should do next is say, well, Jesus is a man of his time, a long time, you know, 2,000 years ago, I guess, uh, and perhaps some patronising remarks about how we've grown on since then. We know, we know better now. That may be the way to approach it. But I don't think that is the way to approach it, actually, because our take-it-for-granted view of diversity and inclusion and equality may not apply here. Notice, for example, for a start, it's not the way the woman responds. She herself understands Jesus' words and accepts them while seeking a loophole. She shares Jesus' outlook and responds within his terms. She does not say, how dare you? But, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table. What Jesus and the woman both understand is that the distinction between Israel and the others and the nations and the priority of Israel. Well, let me put this into context. There are two basic truths of the Old Testament, which is the background story for Jesus' ministry. One, there is a true and living God, the Lord, the creator of all. Two, he has made a pact with a particular people. Out of all the peoples on the earth, he's made a pact with Israel and Israel's descendants. And what this means is that the distinction between Jew and Gentile is not a product of human racism and prejudice, even though it may well lead to that, but it's not a product of it. The living, it's a distinction created by the free grace of God. The living God himself chose this people as his own possession out of all the nations. Now, this is not the end of the matter, as we'll see, but for now it's where we have to start if we understand this puzzling incident. In fact, a lot of the New Testament is about it. See, Jesus' ministry was announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. That is, the announcement that the God of Israel, the true, one true God, who is the God of Israel, is now becoming king. And that is why Jesus' ministry is first and foremost to the people of the God whose kingdom he announces. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. 
Now, if you want a vivid description of what it was to be an outsider to those promises, you could do no worse than go to Paul's, Paul's description of the situation of his readers, now his Greek readers, now Christian, but what it was like for them before Christ. They're also outsiders. This was our first reading. Ephesians 2, 11 to 12, I give you, page 947 of the Church Bible. Quote, Therefore, he says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, and you can get something of the tone of that, the pride, the, the dismissal. Verse 12, remember that at that time, here we go, you were separate from Christ, that is, from the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. There's the situation. That's what it was to be an outsider. And the New Testament never denies this starting point. That's where the woman was. And if, like me, you're not an Israelite, you're not a Jew, that's where you were or are without Christ. So we've had a desperate outsider intruding on Jesus and Jesus' harsh reply based on God's choice. Finally, thank goodness, number three, she with no claim on God's promise gains God's unwarranted gift of grace. She with no claim on God's promise gains God's unwarranted gift of grace. This woman is a tough woman. She is a tenacious woman. She's an audacious woman. She does not give up. Let me read chapter 15, 25, 28 in its entirety. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. She is smart. She is audacious. She will not take no for an answer. In a sharp piece of wordplay, she finds a way around Jesus' iron logic that seems to have closed, slammed the door shut. Yes, it is not right to take the children's food and feed the dogs, but be that as it may, but sometimes the dogs still get the children's food anyway. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, that was literally true in Jesus' time. Can I say it's literally true in our time as well? as I can attest from when I had young children. Although I seem to remember not just food falling from the table, but some children actually feeding the dogs under the table with their food. You may have had that experience yourself. This works, of course, at the other level too. What she's saying is that priority does not mean exclusivity, to put it in, in, in abstract terms. Priority does not mean exclusivity. God's mercy can flow beyond those for whom it has been covenanted, promised. It is promised first to Israel, indeed. It is the children's food. But it yet may even benefit a Canaanite. It may yet even benefit a Canaanite. And when Jesus hears this, he flips 
He said to her, woman, how great is your faith. Your request is granted. Great is her faith. What was her faith? It was active trust. What was active trust in? Despite what appeared to be a no, she trusted in God's mercy, the God of Israel's mercy, even to the outsider. That God's priority would not mean that she was going to be excluded. And notice in verse 22, she addresses Jesus as Lord, Son of David, which are Israelite terms. In other words, she's recognizing Jesus as the anointed king. She has faith in him on those very terms. And Jesus' response is not just that she's outplayed him in the banter, though she has outplayed him in the banter. There's a note of surprise in Jesus' response, I think, but also a note of recognition. A note of recognition. She's seen something in the character of the God of Israel beyond this moment. Jesus was indeed sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But that is not the end of the matter. That is not the end of the matter. And she's seen that. Stay in Matthew's Gospel with me for a moment. Go to the very end, chapter 28. The resurrected Jesus appears before his bewildered disciples. Page 811, if you've got the church Bible. And he commissions his disciples what they're to do next. He gives them a commission. Because all authority, he says, has been given to him, they're sent, not just to the lost sheep of Israel, no, they're sent to all nations. To all the nations. Let me just read a few verses. Verse from verse 18, chapter 28. This is Jesus speaking. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The word translated all nations, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, ta'ethneir, doesn't just mean what we think of as nations like Australia, Indonesia, France. Ethnos means more a group of people, an ethnic group. In fact, the word ethnic comes from the Greek word ethnos, used here. So it can mean tribes or subgroups, different identifications, not just nation states. Much wider, in other words, the world is much wider than we think of a nation today. In fact, the word ethne is used in the New Testament often not to be translated nation, but picking up the Latin phrase, genus, to use to mean non-Israelite, so it's often translated in English, Gentiles, the same word as nation here. The Gentiles, the nations, the ethnics, the rest. And Jesus' command is wide-ranging. Go and make disciples of all nations, all the ethnes, all the groups, everyone. God's grace, the discipleship of Jesus, is now offered to all have faith, without distinction. There's no outsiders anymore at the resurrection of Jesus. And she saw that. She saw that. She pushed that. When Jesus, having been crucified, was raised from the dead, it was then, then and only then made explicit that the promises of God in him were not only for the Jew, 
but for all the others. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, I'm sorry, um, uh, sorry, that the gospel resurrection from the dead is, quote, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. That's Paul writing in Romans 1.8. To everyone who believes, the Jew first, but also the Greek. Romans 1.18. And later on, Paul will write in chapter 3, there is no difference, he says, between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. And elsewhere, Paul's this inclusion of all nations in Israel's Messiah, a great secret, he says, a mystery that's now been revealed. Quote, now been made known to the people of, not made known to other generations, he says, but now revealed by the Spirit to God's holy prophets and apostles. We might add, and one Canaanite woman. This mystery is that, through the gospel, Gentiles, to ethne, the nations, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. Although a discerning reading of, of Genesis, of the original promises back in Genesis, suggests that the selection or election of Israel always had the blessings of the nations in view. It was always implicit in the selection of, of Israel. When God made his promises to Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis, you'll notice it was through him, quote, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the selection of Israel was never an end in itself. It was meant to be the beginning of a great plan of God to bless all creation. Sure, if you read the Old Testament, Israel failed in that, but not Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom these promises come. So there's a sense in which you might say the feisty Canaanite woman was kicking on an open door when she retorted, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And it turns out it's not crumbs under the table, but a feast at the table, which actually is offered through Israel's Messiah. Not crumbs under the table, but a feast at the table. We, not be, we may not be worthy to gather up the crumbs under his table, but he's the God that always shows mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he displayed his... And... I, I, look, I don't know, but frank with you, why Jesus played with her like this. I don't know why he resisted like this. Um, perhaps in his humanity, because as a human being, remember, Jesus does not know what he knows as the Son of God. Perhaps in his humanity, he hadn't had the big picture fully revealed to him in his fullness. He actually meant what he said. And she opened his mind to the possibility. Who knows? All I know is he recognised her great, we may say audacious faith, and she was in the right. She understood the gospel. And then Jesus displayed his power, the power of the kingly reign of God, a power which is over the powers of the death and the underworld. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Her daughter was healed at that moment. Well, what do we do? Well, whether we're Jew or Gentile, 
whether in or not, we'd simply imitate the woman, imitate her strong, audacious faith, her strong, audacious faith, even against resistance, in the mercy of God, in the mercy of God, even to outsiders, which gives none of us any excuse not to take hold of the promises of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. She trusted and acted in trust, claiming the mercy of God, the mercy of God of Israel in the Lord Jesus Christ, so should we take hold of the unwarranted gift of grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die.